I want to call your attention now to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We have been in this chapter for several weeks now, and we come today to verses 16 through 21. John chapter 6, and we'll begin reading at verse 15. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And when even was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. <clears throat> so when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land, whither they went. <clears throat> Let us pray. Heavenly Father, bless, we pray, the reading of your word, and we thank you for it. Thank you for every word of it. We pray now that you would open our hearts to receive it and to understand it and that you would apply it to us. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> we see this text before us coming at the close of a long day in the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a day of travel and a day of teaching, a day of working miracles, most notably the miraculous feeding of over 5,000 with just five pieces of bread and two small fish. And we see the Lord Jesus here, and, and not all of this is in John 6. Some is in Matthew 14 and, and Mark 6, and uh, is it Luke 9? Putting all of the, the four gospel accounts together, we, we see this scenario. The Lord Jesus sent away the multitudes. He would not send them away hungry. He sent them away full and satisfied. He also compelled, insisted, forced, we might say, the twelve disciples to get back in the boat and cross back over the northern portion of the Sea of Galilee, back over to Capernaum, where they had started uh, the day. Perhaps he sent the disciples away because he did not want them to be caught up with the multitude in their 
uh, insistence upon a carnal king and a carnal earthly kingdom. Perhaps some of the disciples in their own background had uh, tendencies toward that. Most Jewish people did, and especially those from Galilee. And so the Lord sends them away. He dismisses the crowd. And we see that the next morning they were still in that general vicinity. So we assume that they found uh, some lodging or a place to camp out, perhaps, uh, for many of them. And perhaps the Lord said something to the disciples like this, uh, I will see you tomorrow in Capernaum. Perhaps they assumed that he would travel by land during the nighttime hours. Uh, whatever the case, they get in the boat and uh, leave for the other side of the lake. As far as the over 5,000 are concerned, evidently they expected to see Jesus the next morning. They saw him turn and go up into a mountain or a a high hill. And they are waiting there in that more level plain, uh, perhaps some, as I said, camping out overnight under the stars. And they can't wait until tomorrow because they have not given up their plans yet. To make him their king, they will see him when he comes back down in the morning and see what becomes of their plan. Well, of course, he had other plans. The Lord Jesus usually has other plans. His plans are better than our plans. His plan was to do the Father's will. And not to go into Jerusalem as an earthly king, but to go into Jerusalem as a spiritual king who is also the Lamb of God who would lay down his life on the cross of Calvary for the redemption of sinners like you and me. And that was a better plan. Thank God. Now, what should have been just a short few miles and a few, maybe a couple of hours in the boat, making their way across, rowing with oars across the Sea of Galilee in this fishing boat, became an all-night ordeal. Because of a storm that arose and fierce winds that blew, as we read in verse 18. The sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. And many writers remark how that the Sea of Galilee is surrounded by hills, of course, and there are channels that come down where the winds can sweep downward toward the water. And a contemporary writer says that the sea level 
of the Sea of Galilee is 682 feet below the level of the Mediterranean Sea. It's a low depression, and that, again, tends toward unstable weather conditions and things like sudden storms. And we see that here, and we see it other places uh, in the life of Christ also. And though these disciples were familiar with the Sea of Galilee and familiar with the, the route they were taking, familiar with the northern shore where some of them were from and some of them had their fishing business uh, and had evidently uh, that as a life's work until they began to follow the Lord Jesus, they were hard-pressed. They were trying to row across, and it was all in vain. The winds evidently drew them off course. <clears throat> and they're struggling. One of the gospel writers uses the word toiling. They are struggling. They are distressed, not making progress. In the midst of the lake. And you notice John, by inspiration, doesn't give us the exact distance. He just says 25 or 30 furlongs, which calculates to be maybe around three miles or so. But they'd gotten off course. And somewhere... Between about 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., in the dark of night, the disciples in this fishing boat, tossed in the storm, struggling, they see something that they've never seen before. They see a figure approaching them on the water. Yes, Walking on the water. What is it? Who is it? Whatever it is, it's coming toward them. And though they were filled with fear in one sense because of the storm, it's as if the, the fear of the storm is set aside in their minds for the fear of this person walking to them on the water. And it says in one of the other accounts that they supposed that it was a phantom, a ghost, someone from the spirit world. And they cried out in fear. They were afraid, it says here in John's account, and they are actually crying out. They're screaming in fear, according to the other inspired accounts. And they don't want this phantom to get any closer to them, but it seems determined to get closer and closer. And it looks like he's going to come on aboard the, the, the boat. And about then, they hear a familiar voice, a voice that they'd heard for over a year now as they followed him here and there. And he says, 
it is I. Be not afraid. You can imagine the relief, the comfort. Suddenly their fear is all gone. He said, don't be afraid. And they're not afraid. Oh, how happy they were. And they were willing for him to come. At first, they hadn't been willing for him to come on the boat. Now it says, verse 21, they willingly received him into the ship. And only the Gospel of Matthew records that Peter, upon Christ identifying himself, Peter makes a request that he might walk out and greet Jesus. And Jesus granted him his request. He says to Peter, come. And after a few steps, walking on the water toward Jesus, Peter becomes more conscious of the storm and the waves. He grows fearful. He begins to sink and cries out to the Lord for help. And the Lord rescues him. And together they board the ship and it says immediately the ship was at the land whither they went and this may have been a a, a miracle all in itself that the storm immediately ceased and though they were in the midst of the sea as it says in, in one of the other accounts immediately they are at the shore of Capernaum Well, that's the story. That's the facts. What are we to learn from this? Well, there are a variety of things to learn. The first is a theological lesson. We see in these verses a glorious display of the deity of Christ. And he displayed it over and over again. It seems like on a daily basis, all throughout the three and a half years of his public ministry. But this is a very great demonstration of his deity, his divine nature. At his own will, he could suspend what we call, for want of a better term, the laws of nature. He could walk on water as if he were walking on dry ground. Now, can you do that? Have you ever tried? Every time any one of us has ever gotten near to water, we step down into the water. The water doesn't uh, suspend us. But here is one who can walk on top of the water. Who but God could do such a thing as this? It is in some ways uh, a reminder of the parting of the Red Sea in the days of Moses. And we have seen some parallels already here in John chapter 6 to, to Moses. And here is another one. Israel, the people of Israel leaving Egypt 
walked across a dry seabed of the Sea of Galilee. Later they sung songs about it. One of them is in Psalm 77. Thy way is in the sea, and thy path in the great waters, and thy footsteps are not known. Thou leddest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And again, the prophet Isaiah makes mention of this in similar terms. Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. And so uh, the, the, the parting of the Red Sea for the children of Israel to walk across is something of an Old Testament parallel miracle to our Lord Jesus making a path in the sea or on the sea and walking right across. Well, again, we see here his deity. He is the unique God-man, and we considered that doctrine some in the previous hour. His, he's a unique person who came to this earth to accomplish a unique work to redeem his people from their sins, to perfectly obey the will of the Father in heaven, to obey his will in life and in death. And he was gloriously raised up from the dead. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Son of God who became the Son of Man. A divine nature who took a human nature and is God and man in one person. He is the one that we worship. He is the one that we trust in as our Savior. He's the one that we submit to as our Lord. And we see that that deity on display here as he walks across the Sea of Galilee. But I want to approach this text by way of application from this point forward in, in terms of ourselves and living the Christian life. We see ourselves in these Twelve disciples out on the Sea of Galilee in the fishing boat in the middle of the storm. And so let me make several observations here and applications to us. In the path of obedience, we may expect storms to arise in life. Think of this. The disciples had been specifically told by Jesus, get in the boat and go over to the other side. They did as they were told. They were walking in the path of obedience. You would think that since they were following orders from Jesus, that they would have smooth water, anything but a storm to arise but not so. In the path of obedience, a storm arose. So likewise with us, 
who are his disciples. Every faithful disciple will face all kinds of storms, figurative storms, perhaps some literal storms, difficulties, troubles, afflictions. Sometimes the storms are more internal and there are doubts and temptations, fears, discouragements, confusion. Sometimes the storms are more external. There are enemies to the gospel. There is opposition to the truth. Or the, the storms may take a, a physical dimension in sickness. Financial trouble may come. Loneliness may come. There are all kinds of storms that come to the believer in Christ walking in the path of obedience. And we shouldn't be surprised when this comes because we've been told in Holy Scripture that all of God's children partake of his chastening. And it's not that he does not love us. It's quite the opposite. It's that he does love us. Hebrews 12 speaks very plainly to that. It's those whom he loves that he chastens. Like a father who loves his children chastens them and corrects them and disciplines them. And oftentimes, it is not because of any act of disobedience on our part. It's just the fatherly training that he gives us as we walk in the path of obedience, or maybe to use the figure here more more closely, as we are rowing along on the water of obedience. God appoints our rough seas in this journey of life. He determines all things, and it's all for our good, according to Romans 8.28. And closely related to that, think of this. Sometimes we move very quickly from a time of great joy and comfort and an extraordinary demonstration of God's goodness to a time of testing and trial and difficulty. We see that here in these disciples. They had just witnessed one of Christ's greatest miracles, the miraculous multiplication of bread and fish to feed over 5,000. And now... They are in the middle of a storm. They're distressed. They're struggling. Times of ease and jubilation do not last long. They will be followed by times of trouble. Thank God times of trouble don't last long. At least they don't last forever. There's much back and forth in the Christian life. It isn't all just joy and 
ease. There is difficulty, and sometimes the the transition from one to the other is rather sudden. And we see that in some biblical characters uh, such as Elijah and others. And so, another thing that we learn here is that we should expect delays in deliverance. Now, the Lord could deliver us immediately from all of our troubles and all of our storms, but he doesn't operate that way. There's usually a delay of some kind. It reminds us of the scene over in chapter 11 where Jesus gets word that Lazarus has died and instead of rushing over there and getting there as quickly as he can, he waits. And there's a delay in in answering the request. So it was here. The Lord could have, well, he could have prevented the storm or he could have come in the first watch of the night, but he waits until the fourth watch of the night to come to the disciples. The Lord doesn't usually come on our time frame as quickly as we would like. And it says in Mark's account that while he was up on the mountain praying, he saw them. He saw them struggling out there on the Sea of Galilee. It's the dark of night. I don't know how he saw them, but it says that he saw them. And his good pleasure was to let them struggle with those oars in the stormy sea for a while. The Lord does not always come when we think it's best. Now, according to his word, he never forsakes his people. I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee, he says. But sometimes he withdraws his felt presence from us for a season. And when he does that, it's always for a reason. In some way to prove us. To show us our own selves and how helpless we are without him and how much we need him. And it endears him to us when he finally does come. They say absence makes the heart grow fonder. Well, so it is with our, in our Christian experience, in the Christian life, when we don't sense the presence of Christ, we begin to desire him and long for him. And when we do see him, we rejoice. Another important thing to consider here is this. When we feel alone and deserted by Christ, struggling out there in the storm all alone, know that he is interceding for us. Again, comparing all of these four accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is the picture that we get. Jesus is up on the mountain praying. The disciples are in the boat on the sea. Multitude is somewhere on land in between. 
and the Lord is at prayer. Now, we're not told what he prayed, what his requests were, but I think it's safe to say that, among other things, he must have been interceding for these men struggling out here in the storm. They didn't know that. They didn't know where he was. They had lost sight of him. But he had not lost sight of them. And he was concerned for them. And he's interceding for them. He wasn't about to forget them. He ever lives to make intercession for his people. And he who laid down his life for us is not about to forget us. He lives to intercede for us. Let us know that even when we do not sense his felt presence like we wish, know that he is interceding for us. Another lesson is let us expect deliverance by him. As I said a moment ago, he may not come in the time that we expect or even in the manner that we expect, but he will come in his own way according to his better plan and his perfect will. Deliverance will come. And he usually comes in the time that we least expect him. He was the last one that the disciples expected to see out here in the middle of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He usually comes in a surprising manner. He comes to us in some providence that we weren't quite expecting. In a way, this is the history of every one of us who is a believer in Christ, is it not? We're down here on earth and we're struggling along. Christ is on high interceding for us. And from time to time, he comes and makes his presence known and felt and special and and precious to our hearts. Perhaps this is where we live most of the time. Perhaps we see here in this scene before us something of all of church history. The disciples of Christ enduring storms while he intercedes. And from time to time in our extremity and in time of great need, he comes and delivers He grants an outpouring of his spirit upon his people from time to time. He sends his his spirit to revive his people upon this earth. To strengthen and encourage and comfort us. And the point I'm making is we should expect his deliverance. Though it may not come in the time or manner that we think we should nonetheless expect 
his hand to intervene. We can apply this corporately as a church. Perhaps in the dark and difficult times in which we live, when so few churches are standing for the truth and many have capitulated to the the the, the sodomite filthiness of the age. We feel like we're struggling alone in the dark. Let us expect deliverance by our great Lord and Savior. Let us pray for his coming and, and pray that he'll come in revival or perhaps he'll come in his second advent in glory. And take us to be with him forever. Whatever the case, our present duty is to keep rowing. We've got to keep rowing in the storm. Again, let us learn to look for Christ in the storm. You know, this is so much a counter to the way we normally think we, 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 we expect to see Christ uh, after the storm. And when things smooth out, then we'll see him. Perhaps that was the thought of the disciples here. If we can just get to Capernaum, we'll be safe and we'll see Jesus there. No, we must learn to look for him in the middle of the storm. You can imagine the happiness on the part of these disciples when they see Jesus walking to them on the storm, coming to them right by means of the storm, we might say. How sweet the sight must have been when they, when they had come to understand this is not some unidentified phantom from the spirit world or whatever. This is the Lord. And yes, they had seen him uh, walking uh, the day before there as he fed the multitudes and so on. But the sight of him walking here on the storm must have been especially remarkable and impressive and significant to them. He didn't come to them on calm, smooth water, did he? He came on the boisterous gales of a storm. And let us learn to look for Christ in the storm. A great calm comes only after a great storm. And we must say something about his method of revealing himself. His method may frighten us as it did the disciples at first. We may not at first recognize him. And the point is this, what appears as a danger may simply be our Lord coming to us in a kind of disguise. When we fail to recognize him in our trials, we imagine all kinds of outlandish things, just like these disciples. Oh, it's a phantom. Have have you ever seen a phantom before? What made them... Think of that. 
we must know that his method of revealing himself is unusual oftentimes. We must recognize his hand behind all things, his hand behind even the hand of enemies, his purpose behind the raging of a storm. And in his own way, he will certainly identify himself and say, it is I, don't be afraid. Christ comes to us on the storms of life. Let me say it again. Christ comes to us on the storms of life. Let us be willing then to receive him in whatever manner he comes. With whatever uh, fears may accompany him. Let me give you a a wonderful quotation here from J.C. Ryle. He says, quote, Let all true Christians take comfort in the thought that their Savior is Lord of waves and winds, of storms and tempests, and can come to them in the darkest hour walking upon the sea. There are waves of trouble far heavier than any on the Sea of Galilee, There are days of darkness which try the faith of the holiest Christian. But let us never despair if Christ is our friend. He can come to our aid in an hour when we think not and in ways that we did not expect. And when he comes, all will be calm. End quote. Well, amen to that. Let me say this. Finally, at his second coming, all the storms of earth will be conquered forever, won't they? There will be perfect calm that will never end and that will never be interrupted. And when he comes again, none of his people will be lost at sea or drowned in the storms. All will be saved. All will be glorified with him forever. And that is in some ways pictured in that psalm that I read from earlier about men in the storms at sea. And then the Lord comes, delivers them, and there's a great calm. Oh, how great the calm will be when Jesus comes again. And let us look forward to that. Until then, let us keep rowing and doing what he's given us to do. Now, before we close, I want to just say a few words of application to those who are not his disciples. To those who don't know the Lord. Who do not trust in him as Savior and submit to him as Lord. You must face the storms of life alone. With no one interceding for you. No one watching over you. The the only company that you have is your fellow man who is powerless over the storm. 
who has no more power than you have over it. Oh, what a sad condition in which to be. Without Christ as your intercessor, without Christ as your mediator, the storms will eventually overwhelm you forever with no rescue, no relief, and certain destruction. And those, and there are many today, who say Christ is not real, he's just a phantom, Religion is just a delusion. It's a crutch for the weak ones to lean upon. It's an imaginary escape from the hard realities of life. And weak people need Christ to help them. They are doomed to continue on their own in the storms of life with no rescue no relief, and they will certainly die at sea, as it were, because they deny their only hope. They deny their only rescuer. Oh, don't let that be you today, my friend. Don't be afraid to welcome the Lord Jesus into your boat. Recognize Him for who He is. He will do you no harm. He will only do you good in this life and in the life to come. Trust in Him. Surrender yourself to Him. Receive Him into your boat gladly and willingly today.